Good morning. Today's reading is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-17. through 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his, ear is op- his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. So, the question, how do you respond to evil? How do you respond to evil? That, that depends on context. If you are a veteran, happy Vets Day, by the way, a couple days late. Veterans Day was Friday. Veterans, or rather the military, or police, those who are civil servants, according to Romans chapter 13, Paul says that they're servants of God to restrain evil and punish evildoers. So if you're in the military or you are in the police force, the way that you respond to evil is with force. You, that, that's, ooh, oh, there you go. So we have a vet. Happy Veterans Day for all you vets. Thank you for your service. But what happens when you come home as a vet, as a policeman, and you, you, you hang up your gear... And then you respond to evil in the home, or you're not in the context of a soldier, you're just a citizen now. How do you respond to evil? How do you do that? And I want you to think about this. I want you to think about a time, probably recently, you probably don't have to think that far back, when you, you experienced injustice or evil. It could be in the context of your marriage. It could be a sibling. It could be a neighbor. You were treated unjustly. It could be a workplace scenario where you are just being sinned against. And it, it, it might not be life-threatening evil, but it's evil nonetheless. And how do you respond? How do you respond? How do we respond to evil? That's the subject that Peter is going to address in the text that we're going to be looking at. So that all depends on where your hope is placed. It all depends on where your hope is placed. If your hope is placed here, you'll respond to evil one way. If your hope is placed here, you will respond to evil another way. So 
what we're going to look at the, this morning, three different, three different things in terms of how to respond to evil. First of all is the call. The call. The call is be holy. What we're looking at this morning is how do we become the kind of people, how do we become the kind of people who, as a matter of our new nature, desire, desire, and are able to love our enemies. Some of you are like, well, you just lost me right there. Well, that's what we're called to. That's what we're called to. So we're going to take a look at the call, which is to be holy, to be set apart. We've looked at that in chapter 1. Second thing we're going to look at is the process. Well, how do you become that kind of person? Because that's not natural. What's totally natural is the military response to evil. With the tip of a sword, that's how you respond to evil. With force. You, you choke it. Or them. That's what you do. Maybe not literally. But you get the idea. And so we're going to look at the process. How does a person who, that's not their nature to respond that way, how do they become that kind of person? And the last thing we're going to look at is the result, the fruit of holiness. Father, we are utterly dependent upon your spirit to work in us. As we look at another text from 1 Peter, there's nothing natural about this, but it is supernatural. Spirit, we ask you to produce the fruit in us that we cannot produce ourselves. Lord, would you make us holy? Would you set us apart? Would you sanctify us? Would you use your word? Father, would you use the preaching of your word? And Lord, I pray that you would give me your words and that the words that I speak would honor you and that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. Lord, we pray this, that he might be honored, he being Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Okay, let's get to it. First of all, the calling. Finally, so Peter is, has been exhorting us in a number of different contexts how to respond to a culture or individuals that are not savory. Submit to the governing authorities. Servants, submit to your masters. In the context of marriage, which we looked at over the last couple of weeks. Then he says, finally, that is, whoever you are, whether you're a government official or you're subject to the government's, whether you are a boss or an employee, whether you're a wife, whether you're a husband, it doesn't matter. Finally, all of you, all of you, so this is for all of us, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. A humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And he goes on and he quotes here a psalm. He says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears are, his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So in summary, our calling, our calling is when we are reviled, well, don't revile. Instead, instead of tit for tat, instead of returning evil for evil, Bless, for to this we as followers of Christ are all called. Simple. There you go. 
Lord Jesus, thank you for this command. Is this really simple? There's nothing simple about this. Is this natural? It is not natural. It is not natural. So, so that's the shortest part of the, the sermon, what we're called to. Does anybody need to, a review over what we're called? This is, this is not new teaching. You know, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. I know you've heard, hate your enemies and, and love your neighbors. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it before. It's like, oh, it sounds so wonderful. And it's so very, very hard to implement. So that's the calling. That's the calling, to be the kind of people who actually do love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. Now, the question is, how do you become that person? How do I become that person? It's my nature to fight force with force. That, that's just the way we are. That's the way we are. And in some contexts, in the military, and the police, Paul and Peter both say that they're God's servants to do so, but we're not talking about that context right now. We're not talking about that. So how do we become those kind of people? This all involves process. So let's keep looking. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Now, now Peter gives us a principle here that as a general rule, it's not an absolute scenario. As a general rule, if you seek to be righteous, you're going, people are not going to mistreat you, generally speaking. But that's not always the case. That's why it's a rhetorical question. But, verse 14, but even, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, which you will if you're a follower of Christ, which you will if you're a follower of Christ, you will be blessed. And then he says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. First of all, if we are going to become the kind of people who is a matter of course, love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself, even when our neighbors persecute or seek to do us harm, we are going to have to have our minds renewed. We're going to have to have our hearts changed. Now, Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, in other words, in light of the gospel, in light of what Christ has done for you, what Christ has done for us, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. He says, for this is your reasonable act of service. And then in verse 2, he says, and be transformed through the renewing of your mind. Something needs to take place between your ears. You have, to, you have to have a different paradigm. So it's not simply just try harder to be good. That doesn't work. It does not work to be told simply, well, when, re- when reviled against, well, just don't revile. Just, re- just return evil with a blessing. Okay, well, that, that's a command, and it's a good command, but it doesn't tell us what needs to happen inside of our heads and inside of our hearts for us to become the kind of people who can actually do that. So our minds need to be transformed. Something needs to be changed. The first thing that Peter gives us here is something needs to be, you need to realign what what you're afraid of. If you're going to be able to love your enemies, you have to realign what you are actually afraid of. What does he say? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. The word troubled means stirred up. Don't let them stir you up. Now, 
who are your thems? You know, those people. Who are the people that rile you up? Who are the people? Who's the individual? Could be someone you work with. Could be someone you're married to. It could be someone in our culture that has an altogether different worldview than you. And it could be a whole bunch of them. Could be a different tribe that you're not in. That tribe could be based on race. It could be a socioeconomic thing. It could be a worldview thing. It could be a political thing. But, oh, you know who them are. Those people. Those people are evil. Or that person is evil. How do you respond? Well, the first thing we do is we can't have any fear of them. Fear of them. Now, some of you are thinking, and I get where you're coming from, but they have power to harm us. So how can we not fear them? You're missing the point. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28? He says, do not fear those who have the power to take your life. Now, now, just let that sink in for a second. He says, yes, they have the power to kill you, but you shouldn't be afraid of them. Does anybody see a contradiction there? Shouldn't you fear the very people who have the power to take your life? Well, according to Jesus, no. Why? Because they cannot cast your body into hell. Jesus says, do not fear the ones who have the power, those who have the power to take your life, but fear the very one who has the power and the authority to cast you into hell. In other words, this life, I mean, if you think about it, you and I, regardless of what you believe, you may not be a follower of Christ. You may be an atheist. You and I are created in the image of God and we are created for eternity and we will live forever somewhere. All of us. And what Jesus is simply saying is those individuals who have the ability to take your life, if you're a follower of Christ, your 70, 80, 90 years is a minuscule tick on the timeline of eternity. They, they can't take that from you. They can kill you, they can persecute you, but they can't take that from you. So it, it has to do with having an eternal perspective, an eternal perspective. So what should we fear? Jesus says in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 10, fear the one who has the authority to cast you into hell. He's talking about, Peter brings this up in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. We covered it uh, many, many weeks ago. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Again, this whole idea of we're exiles, which means what? This isn't our home. This isn't our final destination. We are just sojourners. We're pilgrims. We're making, we're making our way through this life, and we are going to enter into eternity and experience his glory forever. And so those who are evil and do evil to us have no ability to take that from us. And therefore... Yes, you could be persecuted. You could lose your job. You could lose your finances. You could, you could be killed. Probably not in this country for your faith, but certainly elsewhere along, all over the world. And, and in Peter's time, that was a real, a real danger. 
but here's the, here's the deal. None of those things, if you lose them, you don't lose. And so there's no reason, there's no reason to fear nor be troubled, nor be troubled. Look at the second part of this verse, verse 15. But in your heart, so there is a, first of all, don't be troubled and don't fear something. So realign what you fear. So don't fear death. Don't fear all of the things that you could lose because the things that you're most worth keeping, you can't lose. So realign what you fear. And then secondly, realign what you honor, what you honor, what you esteem, what you hold up as most valuable which you hold up is most valuable. And he says in verse 15, the first part of verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Realign what you honor. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I was going to say before I became a Christian, but that's not technically true. Even long after I became a Christian, I'm still struggling with it. And that is this, the person that I want to highest, uh, hold in the greatest, highest esteem and give the greatest honor is, can you guess? Myself. That's my default. Now, when I honor and I esteem myself as the highest, most honored human being in the universe, if that honor is threatened, guess what Brooks feels he must do? I must fight. I remember when I first became a Christian, Stacy and I were first married, and we took uh, her little car in to get the brakes done, and, and I, had, uh, I had flip-flops on in the car, and, and I left them in the car, and, and the mechanic called us back, and he just wanted to show us, Stacy and I, what, what he was doing, what needed done. He said, you know, follow me, and I'll, I'll just show you. And so I ha- I'm barefoot. And I'm walking in through the garage and a different mechanic, not the one who invited me to follow, a different mechanic said, he, he looked at me and he got really cross and he yelled at me. He says, hey, get out of here. You can't be in here without shoes. And I returned his, his reviling with a blessing. <laughs> said no one in the history ever. Who knows Brooke Simpson in 1989? I, you've seen me do it. I did one of these and I dropped, well, I'm not going to tell you what I said, but I was ready to kill. Why? He dishonored me in public. We have to go toe to toe now. (laughs) I've missed the memo from the gospel. Why? Because Christ, I was not interested in esteeming Christ as the most valuable entity or being in the universe. I reserve the right to be the most valuable being in the universe in my own eyes. And until I, you, we esteem Christ and honor Christ the Lord is holy, we will always do what Peter did in the garden and go straight for the sword. And then, after we swing it, we will hear the words from our Savior, Brooks, could you put the sword down? For everyone who lives by the sword will die by the sword. 
You have no idea the power of the gospel. You still think the power is from your biceps and your quads and your delts and the force of your personality. You think that, you think that overcoming your enemy means that you just have to shout them down or, or, or work them intellectually into a corner and overpower them. You don't even know what power is. This is something we've looked at over the last two weeks. It's completely antithetical to the way we think. And it's antithetical to the way that Peter thought. And we've seen that demonstrated. But Jesus, on the other hand, is like, that's, that's not how you overcome evil. You don't overcome evil with force. Regardless of how that force is wielded. And, and so in order to change, in order to change and become the kind of people who don't respond like I'm hardwired and you're hardwired to respond, but to return, to, to return evil, return good to evil. How, how do we do that? It's not natural. Well, we have, to, we have to change what we fear, realign our fears, and we have to realign what we honor. So now the goal is in every context, Lord, how do I honor you? Yes, the guy yelled at me, made me feel foolish, but what would honor you right now? What would honor you right now? So two things to realign. First of all, we realign what we fear. Second of all, realign what we honor. From self as the highest honor to Christ as the highest honor. Now let's keep moving. But what do you do? That's, that's, those things take place between your ears and your heart. Nobody can see that. But eventually there has to be a response. There has to be something which is visible, something which is said or not said. That's a doing. So there's a thinking that moves to doing. There's a believing that moves to, to action. What is the action? Peter says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So first of all, you renew the mind, realign what you fear. Second of all, uh, realign what you honor. And, and, then, and then respond, respond in faith. So this is the process by which we become the kind of people who are able to love as Christ loved. So there is a realigning of what we fear. There is a realigning of what we honor. And then there is a response in faith. This is all part of the process of becoming that kind of person. So what's that response look like? First of all, it doesn't look like silence. This is like walking a tightrope for me. A tightrope. On the one hand, I know I'm called to be gentle. I'll get to that in a minute. On the other hand, I know I'm called not to be silent. Some Christians mistake passivity for what Christ is calling us to do. God is not calling you to be passive. He's not calling you to be silent in the face of evil. He's calling you to speak, to bear witness, to speak the truth in a culture or to individuals who, who are unjust. He's not calling Christians to just, you know, be nice. Gentle, yes. But if nice means keep quiet and say nothing and just mind your own business and hide and hope, keep your head down and it won't, you won't get it taken off, that's not what, what, what Peter's talking about. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus, you'll remember, was not silent. 
And what did it get him? Crucifixion. But that was his plan. John the Baptist, his cousin, was not silent. And what did it get him? He lost his head, literally. Paul was not silent. And what did it get him? He too lost his head. And Peter was not silent. And what did it get him? An upside-down crucifixion. Some of you are thinking, if I do the math, it seems best to just keep silent. No, no. It depends on what you're fearing. Remember, Peter doesn't fear that anymore. He used to. That's why he ran away and denied Jesus before the resurrection. But that's not his fear anymore. He's fearless. He's fearless. So be prepared to make a defense. Now, what is this defense that that Peter's talking about? Just jump ahead to to, to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's take a look at verses 3 and 5. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, that is, the culture who doesn't know Jesus, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, pretty much downtown Iowa City after a football game. (laughs) So, (laughs) with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. So Peter recognizes that as a follower of Christ, the culture around you is going to value things which you don't value, and they're going to participate in things which you know you shouldn't participate in, and, and they're, going to, uh, they're going to be a certain way, and sometimes you're going to get in the way, and they're going to persecute you. And, and here's what, what Peter's saying. No, you, passivity is not the goal. Silence is not the goal. But a faithful witness is the goal. So be ready for, to give a defense. Defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. But to take a look at the list of things which are common in Peter's day, and, and amongst them are sexual immorality. Amongst them are sexual immorality. It's common in, in, the, in Romans' time, in, in uh, first century Greco-Roman culture, for, for people to give themselves away sexually to anyone. They had, they had temples where there's temple prostitutes. So you could be married and you can go have sex with a prostitute, male or female, it doesn't matter. They had both and homosexuality was rampant in the day. Pedophilia was, was normal, was normal. The, the, the uh, Roman um, aristocrats, it's common for them to have young boys and that was not, that was not, that was not a scandal. That's not a scandal. So, so when Peter is talking about the culture, he's not saying, just, just be quiet. He's saying, no, 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 don't, don't be quiet. Be ready to give a reason for the defense uh, to defend your faith. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, as a Christian, I'm going to let them know what I'm against. That's fine. But that's not the reason for the hope. That's just, I'm against sexual immorality. Super. But that's not a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. And I I think that many Christians, especially in our day, feel that it's sufficient just to let the world know that we're anti-fill-in-the-blank. We're anti-this. So, you know, those those people, the thems, the thems, we're against them. 
because they want to they change the culture and they want the culture to become more and more increasingly uh, godless, increasingly immoral. So we need to be against them. So we're anti this, we're anti that. And that's not a problem, but don't, but what's the reason? So you're having a conversation at the water cooler and they say, you know, you're a bigot. You're, you're just, you're just one of those Christians who you're against this. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, it's not simply enough to say I'm against said behavior or said policy or said practice. Well, I'm glad you asked, whatever your name is. Fred. We'll say Fred and I are having a conversation at the water cooler. Brooks, you're one of those Christian bigots. You're just against everything. You call this sexual immorality. How can this be sexual immorality? Well, I'm not anti-sex. I believe that God, in the Bible, it says that he created man and woman in his image to bear his image and to bear his glory. And sexuality, human sexuality, is a wonderful gift from God. And he gives us that, that, that gift for, for enjoyment, for pleasure, but, but to be used in the way that he designed it to strengthen the covenant of marriage, which mirrors his love for us. And, but in and any, any context of human sexuality that's outside of those bounds, it ultimately destroys the human soul. So I, I like sex as much as the next guy, or gal, but outside of God's plan for it, I believe it's destructive for the human soul. Now, I'm not going to interfere with your life or someone else's life and police their sexuality and and to to cause them to stop doing what they want to do, but if you want to know for the reason for why I believe what I believe, that's why. And, And Christ demonstrates that he values my soul and your soul and the souls of all in this way that he gave his life for me so that I would be his bride. And he would demonstrate for me what real love is. That's a reason. It's not, I'm against that. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't say what you're against, but what are you for? That's the reason for the hope. It's not simply enough to say what we are against. You can look at the list of things in 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm against orgies. It shouldn't happen. I'm against lawlessness. Shouldn't happen. I'm against drunkenness. Shouldn't happen. Well, fine, but why? You you see the pattern here? The world already knows what Christians are against, but what are they for? And why do they hold the convictions? The word defense means apologetic. It doesn't mean I'm sorry. It means here's the reason for what I believe and why I believe it. That's what it means to have a Christian witness. That's what it means to have a Christian witness. So, now let's get to the hardest part of this verse. Some of you are like, hardest part? I thought that we've already covered. Oh, no. it's get- Oh, there's the, and yet do it with gentleness and respect. The manner of your fit defense. Do it with gentleness and respect. I, I have to say that I see a growing trend in, and I'll call it Christendom. That doesn't mean that everyone in Christendom is a Christian. 
but those who consider themselves to be followers of Christ and the faithful, there seems to be a growing trend. And, and the growing trend, I believe, is that, that more and more Christians feel that gentleness has no place if you want to win the battle against evil. Am I imagining this? Or is this a real thing? I have heard, I have heard and read various Christians say that when you face your enemy, gentleness has no place. Evil is evil, and you need to fight it. Hmm. What do we do with First Peter? What do we do with the Sermon on the Mount? Has, has something changed in 2,000 years about the gospel that it's no longer sufficient to take into battle? It, 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 where, where did loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you become weak and powerless? When did that happen? The critics will say, when those people came into power. Really? Do you, do you understand the historical... I'm trying to be nice and gentle as I say this. Do you understand how, how out of touch with Christian history that belief is? It's completely antithetical to, the, to what happened in the first century. Do you know when Christians embraced the idea that we would conquer our enemies with power and force and, and no longer the gospel and love? Do you know when that began to first happen? It was right after Constantine took power. Not, a, not took power. He already had power. When Emperor Constantine became a Christian and flipped everything and says that Christianity is now now, not only legal, but it's a state religion. And so now it became the Holy Roman Empire. And so now we can convert people with the tip of a sword. And that worked wonderfully, said no one ever that studied human history. No, what, what worked wonderfully is when Christians did this. How do you think Constantine became a Christian? Through the faithful witness of those who are ready to give a reason for the hope that they had in Christ with no swords, with no money, with no power. Just the gospel. Gentleness. Gentleness. This word is just punching me in the mouth. There's irony. I just keep coming up against, again and again, these commands to be gentle. These commands. Just take a look at Paul in in 2 Timothy. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach. Well, at least I can do that. I'm able to teach, but I don't know that I've been kind and gentle in my teaching over the last 20-some years. Before my sabbatical, oftentimes at some point in the sermon, and it was never predictable, I would just start yelling. And some of you are like, yeah, and it just freaked me out. My children think you're a monster. Well, I'm not, I'm not by nature gentle. You know what I am by nature? Quarrelsome. That's, that's my nature. <laughs> And I want to win. But then Paul says, 
the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents. Notice that he does call them opponents. They are not for me. They're not for you. Your enemies are your enemies, although they're not really your enemies because your enemy is not flesh and blood, but they do oppose you and they oppose the gospel. He says, correcting his opponents with gentleness. There's that word again. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Here's another verse in Titus chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient and ready for every good work and speak evil of no one except those people. Just threw that in just to annoy you. No, speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. Oh, and just to top it all off, how about we show perfect courtesy towards all people? How does that work in the public sphere with those people? How does that work in the office with those people who treat you with injustice and demean you and seem to undermine everything you're trying to do for good? How does that work in the home when your spouse is that person? Think to yourself, it doesn't work. That doesn't work. Maybe we're not doing it in the power of the Spirit. Maybe we need to realign what we fear and maybe we need to realign what we honor. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we're not yet the kind of people who actually wants to do what the Lord says and are able. That's why the process matters. For we ourselves, Paul says, we ourselves, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In other words, Paul says, they're just like you used to be before you received Christ. How do you expect them to act? Why are we shocked when the world acts like the world? And we used to act the very same way gentleness, gentleness. And there's another word there. And respect. I'll I'll bring it back here a little couple back. Here we go. Yet to do it with gentleness and respect. Do you know what the word respect means? It means to admire or esteem. Uh, Again, who's them for you? You know, those people? Do you respect them? Do you respect them? I read an article recently about the, the growing trend in the uh, LGBTQ community, T community, and where, where drag queens are, are reading, doing children's reading at public libraries. Why? Well, the article goes on to say that this is a, this is a, a strategy to, to normalize this and to help children to embrace this kind of sexuality, this perverted sexuality. And, and, and there's pictures of, this is a common thing. It's happening more and more. And, and, and you see it, and, and am I, I'm supposed to respect them? Do you respect them? Do you respect your enemies? How, how are you supposed to respect? This is a question. I want you to think about this. Aren't there some people that are not worthy of your respect? What do you think? Careful. 
in your heart of hearts, I'll tell you what your answer is. Heck no. There are certain people that do not deserve respect. Is that true? Is that how we think? Is that how you think? Sure it is. Those people bear the image of their creator. I'm not justifying their worldview and I'm not justifying how they live their lives and I'm not justifying what they worship. Nor am I justifying the fruit or the expression of their worship. But when Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others. He's saying, you and I were once there too. The worst depraved, perverted human being is stamped as an image bearer of our God. And because of that, they have dignity and they are worthy of our respect, even though they might be given over to their sin and there's no fruit of righteousness in their life. They're worthy of respect on the basis of the fact that they bear God's image not on the basis of what their accomplishments are or how horribly they act. But that's not how we think. We put, everything is based on the honor system, the honor, the merit system rather. You show yourself to be worthwhile for me and you increase my happiness quotient, I'll grant you respect. That's, that's satanic. That's, that's why we return evil for evil. That's why we're not the kind of people who, who, who are able to love God and love others. Gentleness and respect. So what's the result? The result, having a good conscience so that, so that, be ready for it. You will be persecuted so that when, not if, but when you are slandered as a follower of Christ, when you are slandered, those who revile you, revile your, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, and I guarantee you that Peter choked on it, just like we're choking. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, we know this. It's still hard, isn't it? Why is it hard? I believe it's hard because our definition of winning is not correct. It's not in line with Christ's definition of winning. I think the world's objective, the way the world defines the win, is to obtain power and subdue enemies. Yeah? Well, who are the enemies? Those people. Whoever is afflicting me or my tribe, that's who the enemy is. And so to win, we have to get power and we have to subdue those people. And so, yes, the Sermon on the Mount, the gospel is immensely impractical if that's your goal. But what's the win? 
if you're a follower of Christ. The win is to witness to the power of Christ. That's the win. That they, the world, they, the world, would see the power of Christ, which is love. And you might lose your head for it. You might get crucified upside down. Or they might slander you. They might do any number of things. They might do it to me. They might do it to this church. They might do it to all followers of Christ. They've been doing it for thousands of years. And Jesus told his disciples that because they hated me, they will hate you. But I will give you my spirit and you will bear witness. It's John chapter 16. That's how you fight. You bear witness. You don't use a sword made of metal. You use the sword, which is the word of God. And you and I, we give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ, even as we are demised. And you still treat those individuals who would grind you into dust with dignity and respect. Some of you are thinking, I can't do that. And you're absolutely right. But what you can do right now is submit yourself to the living God who sent his son to bear your enemies and your sin. And when you do that, you will find that your heart is slowly warmed and you will find yourself becoming the kind of person who is able and desires to do the very thing you abhor right now. But it all starts with Jesus. As we close in prayer, if you would like someone to pray for you or with you, invite you to come forward. We'd be happy to do with that. But I would just simply end with this. Submit yourself to Christ. For some of you, that's a first-time decision. For others of you, it's the 10,000th time you're submitting yourself to Christ. Long obedience in the same direction. It starts with trusting Him. Father, we thank You for sending Your Son, for giving us grace. It's completely undeserved. We are those people. We were once, all of us, enemies of Christ and enemies of the cross. But you, demonstrating your love, did not consider our sins, Lord, against us, Lord. You, you, you took those very things upon yourself. You took our sin nature. Lord, you didn't die for the righteous. You died for your enemies. And I thank you, Lord, that you've reconciled us. Lord, there are some here who have not yet trusted you, and they still are in the status of rebel enemy. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would bend the knee to you. They would receive you as Savior. And Lord, there are probably hundreds of people in this room right now who know the truth of your word and, oh man, it's just so hard. They don't want to love our enemies. We want to overpower our enemies. Lord, would you show us that our greatest enemy is not flesh and blood, but it's spiritual forces in high places. And Lord, that that enemy seeks to captivate our hearts with pride and not esteeming you 
and fearing everything we shouldn't be afraid of. Lord, would you transform our minds? Would you renew our minds so that we might live for you and bring honor to Christ? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go in grace. We'll see you next week.